Safety, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Thursday edition of FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Got Patrick Lilia, other side of the production glass. Patrick, what's new with you today? How are things going? It's a nice warm day, probably the last nice day of the year, which is what I said two weeks ago <laughs> when it was 70. It's going to be the last nice day of the year, and it was wrong. Well, it's all relatively speaking, though. I mean... Temperatures in the mid-50s is not bad for the middle of November, so I'll take it. In fact, as soon as this show is done, I'm going out and trying to get out on the bike one more time before the season officially wraps up. I'm not the hardiest of person when it comes to uh, biking, where generally if the temperature is uh, below 40 degrees, I'm not going to be out there. I'm not one of those types of people who puts on those big winter tires on their bikes and plows through the snow. No, that's not me. Once it gets below 40 degrees, I'm pretty much done for the season. So any day I can bike in the month of November, I'll most certainly take it. And you know what I should do? I should take a page out of Matt McNeil's book and start taking some photos of the trails I go on. I head on all sorts of trails around the metro area with some really beautiful views of different landmarks and scenery. So maybe I'll have to uh, steal that from old Matt McNeil and uh, and post some pictures of my biking excursions. Of course, isn't it well time though, that like Patrick, I decide to do this on probably the last day I can bike until about March or April. So there you go, setting myself up for failure there on, on updating my uh, pictures of my biking adventures. If I get around to it though, I'll post it over on the AM950 radio Facebook page. By the way, you can also watch the show, of course, on Facebook, AM950 Radio. Just do a search on your app, and you'll be able to find it from there. So tomorrow is the big day when, of course, the new pauses that were announced by Governor Tim Walls are going to take effect. It is tomorrow at 11.59 p.m., where bars and restaurants are going to be closed to both indoor and outdoor dining. Fitness centers are set to close, and youth sports are going to be paused for at least four weeks. A lot of groups are up in arms about that, and I'll get to it in just a second because I found a couple of groups that have to do with local sports. One group took the right approach in terms of their response to the orders from Governor Tim Walls. Another group, eh, not so much. So in a few minutes, I'll tell you about that, but... I want to go through a couple of things. This is being reported by Max Nestrak. He is from the Minnesota Reformer, and he was recently contacted by an emergency room nurse in Wisconsin who is telling Max that her hospital is starting to run out of beds. No surprise there. In fact, that's already happening in Minnesota. But she brings up something that I think is really missed when we are talking about how the pandemic is affecting our hospitals. It's more than just talking about the total hospitalizations and the total number of patients that are in the ICU or just at a normal hospital bed. The bigger issue is, as this nurse points out to the Minnesota reformer, is running out of staff to actually take care of those patients who are in those emergency rooms or ICU beds. And she says it's in part because some workers have gotten sick and others are in quarantine. Generally, hospitals have always pretty much been short-staffed, but that, of course, has been exacerbated with COVID-19. And that's what they're running into at this Wisconsin emergency room where, yeah, they do have the capacity to take more patients. The bigger issue is trying to find staff that can take care of the people who are being hospitalized. She continued to say the state keeps talking about how many beds there are, but that doesn't mean that their staff 
available for them. And that's something you really can't quantify like when we give our Minnesota COVID update. We can talk about the number of people who have unfortunately died, the number of people who have been infected, the number of people in the hospital, and the numbers who are in the ICU. But what's really missing is, well, if you have open beds at emergency rooms and uh, intensive care units, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good if there's nobody there to actually staff your needs. So that's something that often gets missed, and uh, glad that was pointed out in today's Minnesota Reformer. Also, another issue that, of course, is going to be happening with these uh, pauses in Minnesota is the fact that, and I do feel for businesses in this sense, is that, well, these closures are going to happen, but they're going to happen without any financial bailout like pretty much only the federal government can do. I'm not laying any blame on the state legislature or Governor Walls necessarily in this sense. This is more at the federal level where these businesses that are forced to close need some sort of financial bailout to help them through these type of situations. If you look at a state budget, (laughs) it pretty much is dwarfed by the size of the federal budget. We just don't have the capacity at the state level to help businesses and organizations try to work through these four or maybe even lo- four week or maybe even longer closures. That's something that really only the federal government can do when you have, of course, the uh, access to money that they have over at the federal level. So, of course, that's a major issue, and Minnesota lawmakers, of course, probably agree that they do need some relief for businesses and organizations, but you just don't have access to being able to do that at the state level, especially with the fact that, well, for the most part, the state can't run a budget deficit, which is where we're already at. So, ultimately, if we're going to help businesses through these closures and there's pauses, it's got to be at the federal level, and that's, of course, where the issue is. Now, the latest rumor is that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, they're allegedly back at the negotiating table, but I'm at least kind of guessing from Mitch McConnell's perspective that he is willing to endure a lot more pain and deaths from citizens around the country before he finally goes to the negotiating table. And this is overall just the problem of how our response has been to the pandemic at the state and the federal level. We can have, of course, the shutdowns at the state level or pauses, as they're called by Governor Tim Walls. But if A, nothing is happening at the federal level, well, then obviously businesses aren't getting money to try to help them through the situation. And then, of course, just naturally what happens if you kind of take a piecemeal approach when it comes to shutting down your economy or shutting down businesses or shutting down different establishments, if only one state is doing it and the surrounding states are not, piecemeal approaches don't work. Because even if we flatten the curve in Minnesota, well, what's going to happen when we gradually ease those restrictions, and then we get people from the Dakotas or Iowa or Wisconsin coming to Minnesota. That doesn't mean Governor Wall should not taken should not have taken any action whatsoever. It'll at least help a little bit with what he's trying to do, but it'll the effects could have been a lot better. We could have, uh, I think, gotten through this a lot better if we actually had a comprehensive approach at the federal level. Piecemeal approaches don't work, and that's largely why. We're in the situation that we are right now. Ultimately, you got to get something done at the federal level, of course, with helping organizations through what's happening right now. And, of course, also having a national 
four to six week closure, which is, by the way, recommended by Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota, who is part of the task force that is advising Biden on the pandemic. But I don't know, even with Joe Biden, I don't think he quite has the political will to actually implement like a four to six week shutdown. Let me know if you disagree, but I just don't see that coming from really any president, Democrat or Republican at this point, one year into the pandemic. I just don't think the political will is there to do that with the amount of blowback that they would face. You probably could have done this back in March or April of 2020 when people were more open to having restrictions. But at this point, so many people are going through COVID fatigue I just don't know how it would even work at this point. If you tried to do a national shutdown, there would probably be so many citizens and more importantly, state governments that would decide, yeah, we're not going to adhere by these recommendations or rules that are being put in by the federal government. The time was to do it was back in March and April. We didn't. And now, of course, if we even try to do a national shutdown, I don't even think a lot of people would end up obeying that. All right. Now, of course, with the pause that's happening here in Minnesota that has had an impact on youth sports. And as was pointed out by a couple of people to me yesterday, it's funny as you watch through some of the local newscasts, how much time is devoted to the fact that high school sports are over and youth sports are going to be done for at least four works and four weeks. And look at the negative effect it's going to have on all these athletes lives. Well, the group called Let Them Play, this is an informal group that was put together by a number of parents of high school athletes. They even convinced the Minnesota State High School League to resume high school football after originally the MSHSL decided high school football would not take place. Well, they've released, of course, their response to Governor Tim Walls and his four-week pause on youth sports. And this is an organization that's taking the wrong approach as to what's happening with these orders from Walls. Here's what they wrote. As parents, coaches, and young athletes across Minnesota, we are disappointed that the governor took a blunt, one-size-fits-all approach that unnecessarily hurts kids. Our teams, coaches, associations, and athletes have gone above and beyond to create a safe and responsible environment for kids to play. We are confident that the data and science support our youth continuing the activities they love. It is clear from the recent University of Wisconsin study that showed students' athletes playing creates less COVID-19 risks for themselves and others than kids who aren't playing sports. The governor does not have the data or science to support his decision. Now, this is what we talked about yesterday. Patrick and I were getting into this conversation about how the coronavirus is probably spread when you're talking about athletes and people who play sports. Now, this group, Let Them Play Minnesota, they're probably right when they cite this University of Wisconsin study that shows that when athletes are playing games, they're not spreading COVID-19. Again, the real issue, I think, is what happens between the games, at practices, and, well, before and after contests. 
As I talked about yesterday, if you think about a coach who's trying to run a practice, you can do your best to run so-called distance practices where you're trying to distance yourself six to ten feet away from your athletes, but that's very, very difficult to do. And I don't even necessarily blame coaches in that instance. It's very difficult to coach your team if you have to stand six to ten feet away from every single athlete. And Patrick, you were bringing up how you've been at a number of high school sports events this year broadcasting uh, games And you're talking about how, yeah, when you see athletes before and after games, they're usually talking and mingling with one another or talking with their friends after the games. And that's where I think the risk of the spread of COVID-19 happens. It's not necessarily on the field itself when they're playing the games themselves. It's what's happening before and after the games, as you brought up yesterday. And I've seen that same thing where you have kids, athletes, fans, and whoever else that are gathering in groups, not necessarily maliciously saying, oh, we're flouting the COVID-19 guidelines. They're just doing it because it's natural human behavior. And I think that's why this executive order was issued right here. It's not because you have a bunch of young athletes that are getting COVID from playing the sports. It's what's happening before and after. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Do have open phone lines for the entire hour, by the way. So talked about how this group let them play, pretty much taking the wrong approach to what's happening with the pause on youth sports. But I do want to give credit to one organization that actually is taking the right approach on this, and that would be Minnesota Hockey. They are basically a group that runs, well, youth hockey around the entire state of Minnesota. They run pretty much every level except high school hockey. Here's what their press release said. The large majority of our members have been doing everything that has been asked of them. But whether it's coming dressed to the rink, avoiding locker rooms or social gatherings, etc., we also know many of us can and need to do more. Just like in a hockey game, non-compliance to team expectations in a single instance rarely has immediate or dire consequences, but the cumulative impact over time can significantly harm a team. So I give them credit right there. They hit the nail on the head where they're talking about how even if you have teams that are out of compliance and they're might be very few of them that are, it's that cumulative effect where if you have just one team that's out of compliance and not following the proper guidelines, that's what can mess it up for other teams because they might end up risking spreading COVID to other teams or amongst themselves and then to their family members and so on and so on. So at least credit there to Minnesota Hockey for taking the right approach on this. We're going to take a break and come on back with more local news and also want to talk about what's what's happening at the national level uh, with Nancy Pelosi being reelected as the Speaker of the House. And Mitt Romney is chiming in on how dangerous Donald Trump could be during his lame duck presidency. Ah, If only Mitt would do something about that, though. So stick with us here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, back on the Thursday edition of FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. So one of the reasons why the DFL didn't do so well in the state legislative elections this fall has to do with the fact that, well, for the most part, 
DFL voters are compacted into very urban districts where they end up winning seats with like 70 or 80 percent of the vote. And Peter Callahan of MinPost uh, wrote about this and talked about how this is an issue that really goes outside of gerrymandering and being a cause as to why Democrats are not doing so well when it comes to state legislator races. So he writes that of the 70 seats that the DFLers won in the state House of Representatives, again, DFLers won 70, Republicans won 64, 25 of the 70 seats that were won by the DFL were captured with more than 70% of the vote in their districts, with 10 more getting at least 80%. So that means half of the House seats that the DFL won They were won in districts where they got more than 70% of the vote. In other words, that's where you have all of those DFL voters that are pretty much crammed into one area. If you compare them to the Republicans, just 15 of their 64 seats were won by a margin of greater than 70%. In the Senate, same kind of deal. The DFL has five seats that they won with 80% or more of the vote while the GOP had none of them. So that's a problem that goes just beyond gerrymandering. Now, of course, in other parts of the country, that is a major issue, but this goes to a larger thing that, well, is a problem for Democratic voters is the fact that they're all pretty much crowded into very compact districts. Again, gerrymandering, not the problem. I would even go back to what former AM 950 radio host Norman Goldman said about this. I remember on one of his shows a few years ago, he mentioned that, well, if you really want to help in some of these legislative or congressional races where Democrats are pretty much packed into one district, you got to move to rural areas and try to flip some of those red seats that are deeply red rural. Got to try to get some Democratic voters to live in those areas, try to flip them blue. So... A good piece pointed out there, uh, that is Patrick, or excuse me, that is uh, Peter Callahan over in MinPost who writes about the issue of, well, Democratic voters getting compacted into very small districts. And again, it doesn't have anything so much to do with gerrymandering than the fact that, well, Democratic voters are very compacted into districts while Republicans are pretty much spread out around the entire state. Also in the news today, Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who held his knee on George Floyd's neck, of course, for more than nine minutes and was charged with murder. Not the first time, apparently, that he's knelt on someone, a suspect. Prosecutors in the case against Derek Chauvin want to include four cases from 2014 to 2019 in which they claim Chauvin restrained suspects beyond the point when such force was needed. So in other words, they're saying they have apparently four other cases where Derek Chauvin was kneeling on a suspect. Luckily, in those four other cases, the suspect didn't die or suffer significant injuries. But wow, that is unbelievable that when Chauvin knelt on the neck of George Floyd, that was at least the fifth time that happened at least the fifth time. I'm sure there's other instances that prosecutors haven't uncovered or instances that we might not even know about. So, yeah, that is uh, very, very sobering that we're seeing out of the uh, trial with Derek Chauvin and the murder of George Floyd. Taking a look at some national news. So Nancy Pelosi yesterday was, to no one's surprise really, re-elected as the Speaker of the House of Representatives 
despite the fact that Democrats look like they are going to lose about 10 or 12 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. In fact, uh, the New York Times is estimating that their majority is only going to be something like 222 to 213. Now, a lot of moderates in the U.S. House were making a push to have a guy by the name of Hakeem Jeffries take over as Speaker of the House. He withdrew his name for that, though, because I think he's uh, thinking ahead as being a possible successor to Nancy Pelosi, especially since yesterday Pelosi hinted that this would likely be her final term. So Craig was nominated by Angie Craig and a few other uh, U.S. representatives, but Hakeem Jeffries could be a name to watch as he got a prominent position within the Democratic Party in the U.S. House. And I'll at least tell you this, if you're not a fan and you're a progressive and you weren't the biggest uh, supporter of Nancy Pelosi, you're really not going to like this guy, Hakeem Jeffries. He's a U.S. rep out of New York, and apparently he has taken the most money out of any Democratic U.S. representative from hedge funds and Wall Street. But he also is a very skilled communicator, as he was one of the impeachment managers back in January, and he got some props back then for apparently quoting Biggie Smalls as he was uh, running the impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump in the Senate. So he's very much a culturally aware guy, kind of similar to Barack Obama, but do keep in mind that he gets a ton of corporate money. So if he were to take over for Nancy Pelosi after 2022... Yeah, probably expect more out of the same of a Democratic leadership. And finally, Mitt Romney warned in a CNN interview that the consequences of actions taken by President Donald Trump during the lame duck period of his term are potentially more severe than those caused by the delayed presidential transition. A new Monmouth poll finds that 34% of the country, excuse me, I'll get to that poll in just a second, getting ahead of myself there, but yeah, I love that Mitt Romney's going on CNN and talking about how the lame duck period of Donald Trump could be more severe than by a delayed presidential transition. Yeah, will Mitt Romney actually do anything about that, though? He always seems to be a guy who talks a good game, but then never really backs up his actions. All right, now that poll that I was just talking about a second ago for however much you trust pollsters anyway, but this also, I think, really sums up what happened on November 3rd, 2020. So Monmouth finds 34% of the country is happy that Donald Trump lost the election, which is more than the 26% who feel happy about Joe Biden winning. So in other words, more of the country is happy that Trump lost than that Biden won. And in fact, that is the first time in modern political history that a president has been elected under those circumstances where more people are happy about their opponent losing than, well, the presidential candidate actually winning. So certainly another challenge that Biden is going to face when he is inaugurated coming up in January. All right, coming up next, we are going to be speaking with a Minnesota campaign political expert named Todd Mickelson, as he's going to share some insight into how the DFL campaigned in these state legislative races and, well, throughout pretty much the entire year and can share some insight into perhaps why the Democrats didn't do quite as well in those legislative races. We'll talk with Todd about that and some other topics coming up next here on AM 950.
950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, back on the Thursday edition of FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. We're joined now by Todd Mickelson. He is a small business owner, former Minnesota House candidate, and current DFL operative in Senate District 33 in the western suburbs. As Todd joins us now on the show, as we'll be talking about what happened with the DFL and their legislative elections this past fall. Also get on some other topics, including Tom Bach and David Tomasoni leaving the DFL, and even get into uh, more political news with what's happening with the recent announcement by Governor Tim Walls about a pause on many different industries. So, Todd, welcome to the AM950 Airwaves. Good to have you on today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So before we start diving into these topics, uh, tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got involved in politics in the first place. Well, it, I became a small business owner. I, I invented uh, and patented a uh, contraption, and I built a small business around it. And then I was invited to a small business group that was kind of getting involved in politics, and I thought that was interesting. Normally, uh, they're very right-leaning, but this was a pr- kind of a progressive group, or at least a Democratic, mostly, uh, group. And so I started to think more in those lines and there were some people there that pointed out to me that the district that i lived in didn't have a candidate for the house and this is back in 2011 and so i thought i thought about it and i ended up running for office i ran in the 2012 and 2014 races in district 33a and they were newly drawn uh because this the census was in 2010 the when i first decided to run, I was actually kind of more in what is now 33B, which is and even was back then a winnable uh, kind of area. But then I, the the boundary moved from being a little north of me to a little south of me, so I ended up being in 33A, which included a lot of farm country and things like that in Corcoran and Greenfield, way on the western edge of Hennepin County. It actually takes up about a third of the western uh, part of Hennepin County. And um, so I ran and I door knocked really hard and um, brought the numbers up by nine percentage points from the DFL base numbers. And uh, so I I went on then to, I've also done a lot of work at the Capitol advocating for small business issues in policy, things like paid family and medical leave. Um, People would be surprised as to how truly small businesses would benefit from a lot of things that people assume businesses are against. I'm completely behind the paid family and medical leave legislation that we've been trying to pass here in Minnesota for years now. Yeah, so that's basically my background. Um, and But it kind of points out that out in this district, which is traditionally red, the people are not completely right-wing people. They're very much willing to vote for the person. And I I used to say, and everybody agreed with me, that people are used to voting for the R out in these western suburbs because it used to stand for Ramstead. Jim Ramstead, who was a very reasonable and, and really good uh, legislator who was both in the Minnesota House and was congressman out in this area, and everyone loved him. I voted for him. And... Uh, but the R doesn't stand for Ramstead anymore. It stands for, I don't know, I, I think it stands for radical. So when I went door knocking, I had a lot of people vote for me who voted for other Republicans. Uh, you know, they, 
they voted against Barack Obama, but they voted for me because they met me at their door. And uh, so that's the, the nuts and bolts and bread and butter of DFL elections is door knocking. And as you said, even though you ended up not winning that race, still increasing well, the number of votes that a DFL candidate got by nine percentage points is very significant. And you brought up something which is really key, that aspect of door knocking. In fact, if we look back at 2018, that's a major reason why the DFL was able to recapture the state House of Representatives is that they did put together a big door knocking campaign. In fact, as I think to Matt McNeil show, who of course is on after me, he was talking about how he talked to several Democrats who were his uh, Democrats of the day during his interviews, how they were saying that it was the first time ever when they were running into constituents that a Democrat had ever knocked on their door. So Obviously, yeah. in 2020, it was a much bigger challenge to door knock, and I'm wondering if that's a big reason why perhaps the DFL didn't do as well as they thought they would, because from my perspective, I thought, well, if Joe Biden is going to win Minnesota by seven percentage points, that's got to be a shoe in for the DFL maintaining control of the House and winning the state Senate. But as we saw, that didn't happen, and perhaps door knocking played a big role in terms of, well, why Dems didn't do as well down ballot. Yeah, one of those candidates that was featured on Matt's show back in 2018 was Kelly Morrison, and I actually was, uh, I recruited her to be a candidate and ran her campaign for the first few months of it, uh, and, and it grew so quickly that I kind of passed it off to a person who had a huge door-knocking plan, and she door-knocked her entire district. She was working on her fourth time through the entire district door-knocking by the time election day rolled around and she won. She's the first Democrat to ever win out in this area in the history of the state of Minnesota. And, and she won again in 2020, uh, but still kind of squeaked by. She won by 309 votes in 2020. Um, she won by 216 in 2018. But uh, and even my experience when I door knocked back in 2012, that's what people were telling me. Wow, wow, I've never, well, not just a Democrat, they've never had a Republican or a Democrat knock on their door. So out in this area, if you have an R behind your name, you don't door knock because you th you just assume everyone's going to vote for you. And, and if you have a D behind your name, uh, you assume you're not going to have a chance to win, so you don't door knock. But, but now we've been door knocking, and the current candidates it, uh, even brought the percentage up the in 33a Caitlin Cahill brought the percentage up by another five points beyond what I did, but she also is on the city council in Maple Plain and has door knocked herself before. So we have stellar door knocking candidates out here that really would have had a chance to win. Many people don't realize that the DFL did not allow their candidates to door knock because of the the pandemic, and um, I, I'm not a. I, I, that's a really tough call to make. I don't hold it against Ken Martin or the DFL at all to make that decision because it was just an impossible decision. But that was the decision they made. And I think in a district like this out here in 33A especially, I think it did have a big part in, in basically really being against the DFL having a better chance of winning. 
And as I was talking about in my last segment, this was pointed out in MinPost today, Democrats represent a ton of districts where they're getting 70 or 80 percent of the vote. So really, in order for them to win a majority, they do have to win these districts that do lean a little bit more red, where for the most part, you might run into voters who, yeah, they just vote for Republican every time because that's what they've done their entire life. And the Mm -hmm. only way you're going to connect with those types of voters or maybe others who just simply don't vote is by having that personal interaction to put a human face on the candidate and saying that, well, I'm not this weird, radical person that you hear about from right-wing media. I'm just a reasonable person like, well, you and me. And that's what I think has a big impact with helping people win in those types of districts. And that, of course, was exacerbated even more by the fact that, well, DFLers have to win these types of districts where they typically are not going to be in the majority. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Uh, at this level, at the at the state house level and the state senate level, things are very much kind of old fashioned, like what you see on TV with you know small town kind of politics, where uh, people they don't talk about what party. I I was rarely, if ever, asked what party I was in when I door knocked back in 2012, and and I hear that from candidates now too. They they say, yeah, nobody cares what party I'm from. They just I was always asked so. So it says here you're, you know, I would hand them a lit piece and they would say, it says here you're a small business owner. What kind of business do you own? And I would explain it to them and they'd say, well, great, I'm going to vote for you. And that's pretty much all we talked about. Because like what you just said, they just really wanted to meet the person. Yeah, it's that big personal interaction. And it's not so much as I'm sure you were door knocking and advising other candidates. It's not just going through and giving a stump speech and giving a 10 point plan on where you stand on all the issues. It's just coming off as a reasonable person that you can have a conversation with, which is authenticity is such a missing piece of politics, I think, nowadays that it's really an underrated aspect that I think can help candidates, whether Democrats or Republicans. I agree. That's what really helped Dean Phillips. And Dean Phillips absolutely routed uh, Eric Paulson back in 2018. And he won very handily in 2020 as well. Dean Phillips is just... He's ju- he comes off as nothing but, I mean, well, a lot of things, but um, certainly he comes off as being 100% genuine. You really, even if you disagree with him, you, you like him, and you, it's obvious that he's being a genuine person. And that, that's what really made that, you know, and he's, he's the first person to hold that seat since 1959. Yeah, and he's probably going to stay there for quite some time. I don't necessarily agree with everything that Dean Phillips does. He's a little more moderate than my taste, but Mm -hmm. it's similar to even the dynamic that Paul Wellstone ran into back in 1990 or 1996, where I remember this being reported that people would say, well, I don't agree with Paul Wellstone on all these issues, but I know where he stands, and I know he's a good person. And that's the reason why he succeeded, despite the fact that he had such a negative campaign campaigns run against him in 1990, 96, and 2002. Yeah, I think with him also, as with Dean Phillips, and I think it ended up being this way with with, um, Al Franken as well, people realized that this guy is really, he really believes in what he's talking about. And people respect that. Even if they disagree with you, if you show them that you really believe in this and you're willing to fight for it, people respect that. 
So what does the DFL need to do moving into 2022? Is it as simple as just saying, well, if we get back to door knocking, we'll have more success? Or do you think there's something more that they need to do to try to recapture some of these House seats that they lost and, of course, try to gain a majority in the state Senate? Well, I think in 2022, certainly just being able to door knock will put us back on track to be in the direction that we were moving in in 2018, which was an absolute surprising blowout. And it was historic. Uh, so every, I think everybody was looking for that. And like you said, you know, uh, you were expecting us to take back the Senate. So was I. So was everybody, I think. I think the Republicans were expecting that. And um, so at least put us on that track. But I think that kind of like in the vein of what you and I are talking about right now, I think we need to be more bold in talking about the things that that we know will work. There, uh, you know, when the DFL took over the legislature completely in, in 2012, when we won in 2012, so that the 2013 and 14 sessions were uh, DFL House majority, DFL Senate majority, and uh, DFL governor, we turned a, a $6 billion deficit into a $2.6 billion surplus just by, well, a, a lot of it had to do with the fourth tier taxation, which the Republicans don't even talk against anymore because it really worked fiscally and, and uh, economically in Minnesota. So I think the DFL needs to be more bold and stand up for the things that we know work and, and put them through and show people that we can improve Minnesota. That's the best way to get people on our side, I think. And you need to continue running on those types of positions because, as you brought up, when the DFL did take over both chambers of the state legislature in 2012, well, lo and behold, they lost the state House of Representatives in 2014. Now, of course, a big part of that mm -hmm. had to do with the fact that it was a midterm election and Democrats controlled the White House. And obviously, right. elections typically go against the party that controls the White House. But Dems are going to face the same situation in 2022, where it'll be a midterm election during a Joe Biden administration. And that'll be a challenge again for Democrats to make sure they run on those types of issues, because I'm guessing, like with what's happened with every other modern president, there is going to be a backlash against Joe Biden. And you're going to need to find a way to create some voters who probably aren't thrilled with Joe Biden, but might end up deciding to vote for DFLers if you can convince them. So talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, I think, first of all, I remember back in the days when I ran, you know, and I, I knew a lot of the fellow candidates and legislators, um, we were a lot more careful back then. I was careful with my messaging in 2012. We didn't want to talk too much about gay marriage, you know, mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that talking about gay marriage was worked out great, and we ended up legalizing it much sooner than anyone thought, uh, a lot because the Republicans kind of poked the hornet's nest with that subject. But it taught me and others that, you know, we need to to stick more to what we actually believe in. I believed in the uh, gay, gays having the same rights to get married, but I just didn't talk about it because in this district, I thought that would kind of maybe hurt my chances of getting Republican votes. Well, I think that was wrong. And so I became more bold. Other people became more bold. I think the party is more bold now than we were back then. Um, I think a big problem in 2022 is going to be the same problem that Barack Obama had in 2010 and 2014 in that 
he's having to clean up such a huge mess. That's whenever, mm-hmm. whenever the Democrats take over the White House, there's such a huge <laughs> mess to clean up that we can't get it all done in two years. So everyone thinks then they blame it on you know Barack Obama. So we're going to have to really work hard to to clean up this even bigger mess that's been left, uh, so that you know we have some people who believe in what we're trying to do. I think that'll be easier at the state level. But like you said, the you know the national politics always bring down the the down seat uh, candidates as well. Yeah, and that's the challenge because you either have to get people who might be against Biden at that point to turn out and vote vote for a DFL state legislature or perhaps Mm -hmm. the even bigger challenge, trying to get a non-voter motivated in a non-presidential election, which is always a big, big challenge for Democrats. So they certainly have their Mm -hmm. work cut out for them. But I agree with you. If you're just bold and know where someone stands on, well, the issues or they just come across as being approachable and likable, that goes a lot way when you can try to win against some of those political headwinds that might be going against you at that time. Yes. And and I think talking about the voter turnout, I think we're doing a lot better because in in this scary mess that has been going on for the last four years, people have become so much more engaged and people are see I mean we, we, we had incredible record voter turnout this election. You know, the the presidential candidate, even the losing candidate, got 71 million votes. Um, that's, you know, so we're talking about 30 or so million more votes than in 2016. And young people are certainly way more engaged than they have been for decades and decades. So I think, uh, I think that problem, ha- we've made a lot of headway on that one. We're going to take a final break here on the show and come back with one more short segment with Todd Mickelson as we're talking about DFL campaigning at the state legislature. And we'll wrap up with a few final thoughts coming up in just a few minutes here on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. And we're back on the final segment of FYI Politics with Brett Johnson as we're joined by Todd Mickelson, who has been involved in many DFL state legislative campaigns over the years, whether as a candidate himself or advising other campaigns. And uh, Todd, before we get back to you here, do you want to get to some phone calls that we uh, have holding right now? Let's talk to John Peters, who is actually the Senate candidate for the DFL who ran against Paul Gazelka. John, hey, good to have you back on the show. Well, thanks for having me there. Um, i just like to also mention the fact that I have to move away from my other phone, but uh, mention the fact that uh, on top of the things, we've had a different candidate running against Gazelka uh, three, in three elections. Hmm. So each time we needed to learn how to be a candidate. The second thing is we had no, no county fairs. We had no parades. We had no big get-togethers and no door knocking. So it's hard to be a new candidate and uh, get your name out to where we're at. I actually managed to collect 33 more votes in my area than Biden-Harris did. Uh, And it's probably just because a couple people have heard me on the uh, radio, a couple people heard me on TV and uh, some of the other debates. But... uh, and Paul is a better politician than I am. But, uh, that, you know, that's just basically the some of the stuff we're running out here is uh, single 
single. I have to leave it uh, there here, John. Voters. Unfortunately, your phone's kind of cutting out on us there, but do appreciate the phone call. And uh, Todd, I apologize, only got about a minute left in the show, but you can probably speak to that too, that when you have a first-time candidate, especially in a red district like Paul Gazelka, that's uh, very challenging to try to get someone up to speed on how to properly run a campaign. And as John was talking about, uh, doing that when you have a different candidate every cycle is very challenging. Yes, every candidate I've worked with, and including myself, uh, we decided we were going to run at least twice because the first time out in these tough districts is kind of like a getting up to speed, learning how to do it type of thing. And the second time, you you really can make a lot more headway. I My second campaign, I raised two times more money. I, I just did a better job, and I had a, I had a good campaign manager that I was able to, to get. So I hope you run again. Um, and uh, my brother lives in your district, so I know he voted for you. <laughs> well, unfortunately, and- we are just about out of time here, Todd, but we will definitely bring you back for a future show. Stay tuned. We got Matt McNeil up next.